All right, the rest of us, let's take out our Bibles and find Romans chapter 6. Once again, as we continue our study in this letter, Romans chapter 6. Before I read the verses that we're going to read this morning, let's remember what we talked about last week in the progression of Romans that we've seen thus far. Romans 1 through 5 were primarily about, we summarize it with one word that Paul used. Anybody shout it out? Justification, right? Righteousness, justification. The act of God by which he declares us righteous, a sinner righteous, when that sinner looks to Jesus Christ in faith, and that means they are forgiven of their sins, and they are credited with all the righteousness of Christ. And then in chapters 6 through 8, we're introduced to this topic or aspect of salvation called sanctification. And that is the in part, the process of becoming holy. As we are holy, we become holy progressively in our lives, primarily through obedience to God. That's in verses, or chapter 6 through 8. And then also in chapter 8, we will be introduced to this final aspect of salvation. And a progression goes from justification into sanctification and then that final step of progression into glorification. And that is what we will talk about somewhat next week as we think about the resurrection and what it means for us. Uh, one of the things it means is that one day we will be raised from the dead and glorified as Christ is glorified now, you see. So that's the progression, justification into sanctification into glorification. And Romans 6 speaks of and focuses upon this idea of sanctification. So I'm going to read, let's read the uh, beginning of verse 1, and I'll tell you when we're going to stop, okay? <laughs> what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
Do not let sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Let's just pause now and ask God's blessing. Father, please help us as we look at your word. Give us the eyes to see what we need to see about ourselves and about you and about the cross and about the resurrection of our Savior. We pray for that. I ask that you would gift me now with a grace gifting to be able to teach and exhort for the profit and edification of your people. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Verses 19 and 22, if you remember, I didn't read them this morning, but those are the two verses in which this word sanctification appears. Verse 19, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. There's that word. Then verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. Do you remember the word that you're supposed to think of when you think of sanctification. That word is holiness. That's really what it is. As a matter of fact, the New International Version translates the word sanctification here simply as holiness. To be set apart by or from sin unto God is the essence, if you will, of holiness. Some Christians struggle with the concept of holiness with the concept of obedience that leads to holiness or the pursuit of holiness in their lives. And that is because they have trouble reconciling grace and holiness. They have trouble recognizing, uh, reconciling this concept of a salvation by pure and free grace and yet the demands of holiness placed upon a believer in his or her life. They have trouble recognizing them. These are Christians that you may talk to and you can see that this person is living comfortably in a way that you, as you know of their lifestyle and the way they're choosing to live and the things they're choosing to do, there are actual verses from the Bible that are plain and clear that come into your mind that say that forbid what they're doing. And if they're confronted about it, these are the Christians that will say, that's so legalistic, I'm under grace. For those Christians... The gospel of grace is a gospel of forgiveness only. 
For those Christians, the gospel ends with Jesus dying on the cross for their sins. But that's not the whole gospel. There's more to the gospel and more to the effects of the gospel in a true believer's life, you see. This is what Paul is teaching. That far from grace and holiness being contradictory to one another is that they go hand in hand together. That's what he's trying to show. Justification flows right into sanctification, right into the pursuit of holiness. You'll remember that we said last time that salvation is a kind of a package gift from God that comes to every believer in its entirety. He doesn't divvy out these aspects of salvation to some and not others. He doesn't say, I'm going to give this person justification, this person over here sanctification, you know, some of you uh, glorification. You see, it doesn't work that way. Salvation comes to all of us in its entirety, all of it brought to us through Jesus Christ. So justification leads into a life of holiness. Grace produces a life of holiness. The whole gospel, when it's understood, not just the death of Christ, but also the resurrection of Christ that we'll celebrate next week, this, all of it bears implication into the Christian experience. And you'll recall that we made the bold statement, or rather just read the scripture passage that makes the bold statement that holiness is required to see the Lord. (coughs) Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and strive for the holiness, or same word there, the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. In other words, if we say we have justification, but we do not strive for holiness or have holiness to any degree in our lives, then we should have no expectation of seeing the Lord. And as I mentioned last time, that is a verse that makes you, it forces you, doesn't it? It forces you to pause and think and ask the question, do I fulfill, do I have what fulfills the requirement of this passage if I want to see the Lord? There are Christians who largely want to be Chapter 4 and 5 of Romans Christians, but they don't like 6 or 7 or 8 very much. There are Christians who think there is some kind of contradiction in God's grace and in His good law that He gives to people. And as somehow these two things don't go together. They want to live lives that are apart from any law. Or as Paul says in Romans 6, lives of Lawlessness. And if you confront them with this, 
They were, they get upset with you. I grew up in a very conservative church. So conservative that you could have, you could fit the entire church in these first three rows. That's how conservative we were. So when I was eventually saved and came into the Christian life, obedience to the Lord and pursuing holiness and saying no to sin and obeying God's word was like a no-brainer to me. I didn't even, I, I just like, well, duh, that's what you do. I'll never forget some of the first people. And yes, I have certain people in my mind, right, that I'm thinking of. None of them are here in this room <laughs> who lived in ways that were so contrary, so blatantly contrary to God's word and yet claimed to be Christians, participated in ministries, and were just living an entire opposite of what the Bible taught. I was so dumbfounded. But I went through a phase, as we all go through phases, of a hyper-focus upon grace. And in that time of tunnel vision, and I saw grace, and I was feeling my own insecurities about my sinfulness and that, I actually began to question my ideas of pursuing holiness and believing perhaps that I'm legalistic. Maybe this is just an influence of my legalistic, fundamentalist, Baptist background. And so maybe began to think that they were the ones that were correct and I was wrong. As though there were some kind of problem here with this idea that justification leads into sanctification. We're supposed to just pursue holiness in our lives. But thankfully, the Lord being faithful to me, kept me in the scriptures and kept me thinking through these things and showing me no very clearly. But not only is that just a wrong way of thinking, it's a very dangerous way of thinking. Because without the holiness, they will not see the Lord. It's very dangerous to be assuring people who show no evidence of true salvation, that anything has happened in their heart, that God has actually written his laws on their hearts, and there's no evidence of that in their lives to assure that person they're on their way to the kingdom. When you do that, you are one of the ones that both Paul and John warned their readers about. Let no one deceive you about this. Those who practice those things, and he had all those sins listed, those people will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Let no one deceive you about this. Grace does not give us permission to live in lawless ways. Grace and the law, once you see Christ, once you understand the gospel, then grace and the law sync up beautifully 
and walk hand in hand together. I want you to notice in those first four verses of this chapter that they are focused in on the gospel. I would say the pure and whole gospel. You have in those verses the death of Christ. If you were going to share with the gospel with somebody, you would, you would talk about Jesus dying on the cross. You would talk about him being dead, but on the third day, what? He's rose again. That's the gospel. It's purity. As a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul gives this synopsis of the gospel that he preached. And he says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That is just a succinct way of putting the matters of first importance of the gospel that we share with people. In Romans chapter 6, however, what Paul is doing is showing how that gospel affects the life of those who truly believe it. That each element of it, the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, is important for the believer to capture and actually believe and to apply then into their lives. Not just part of the gospel, but the whole gospel. And what the whole gospel, when it's believed and when it's applied into life, what it does is ends. Look at verse 4, that last phrase of verse 4. What does it lead to? A newness of life that we walk in. I'm talking now about Romans 6. We too might walk in the newness of life. When the Bible talks about walking, it's talking about the way you live. Like how you conduct yourself in your life. And the things you choose to do and not to do. And what he's saying is, appropriately applying the gospel to your life means you're going to walk now in a new life. This is what Jesus has given to you. He's given to you now new life. Now go and walk in the newness of the life that the gospel brings. That's what he's saying. You've died with Christ. You're buried with Christ. You were raised with Christ. Now walk now in the newness of life. True faith then in the gospel brings true change into the life. You know, there will be many, many Christians across the country next week who will celebrate Resurrection Sunday for whom the resurrection of Christ has changed nothing in their life. They've lived the same way they've always lived done the same things they've always wanted to do, yet they'll go to church and they'll celebrate Easter Sunday and the resurrection of Christ, but they do not share in any of the newness of life the resurrection brings for believers. This will happen across the nation. 
Some of those people, this will be the only time they show up to church the entire year. Friends, what we're learning here is that Jesus didn't die, just die for our forgiveness. He rose for our holiness, you see. That what we're seeing in these verses is that sanctification flows from the gospel itself when it's rightly understood. We were baptized into his death. We were buried with him by baptism into death in order that for this purpose that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life, you see. Our old life of sin died with him on the cross and our new life of holiness begins in the resurrection. You see, friends, the understanding of the whole gospel changes our lives. And this is what God wants to do through the gospel. He wants people who are justified, who then in their lives pursue righteousness and sanctification all the way into glorification. Our old life of sin died with him on the cross and our new life of holiness begins in the resurrection. And friends, since sanctification is a result of the gospel and since it flows from the gospel, that means that sanctification is not legalistic. Sanctification, the pursuit of holiness in your life, is not legalism if it flows from the gospel. Now, if it is starting out here with our holiness in trying to work our way back to God to get the good news that we've been good enough to get to God, now that's legalism and that's damning. Nobody can be saved in that way. But when holiness of life flows from the gospel and it's all because of the gospel and you can say things like this, I'm no longer going to live in this sin. Why? Because I've died with Christ to this sin and I've been raised with Christ to the newness of life so that I no longer have to be enslaved to this sin. So I'm no longer going to live in this sin. That's not legalism, friends. That's gospel life. That's grace. It's not legalism to identify things in your life that are slowing your progress in holiness down and get rid of those things, good or bad. There's nothing, that's not bad, that's good if it's a result of the gospel in your life, you see. Holiness of life is very much congruent with the gospel. Holiness of life flows from the gospel and what we know to be true about the gospel. In chapter 6 of Romans... is a chapter that is primarily a response to two questions. And both of those questions are about the same thing. It's about grace. Now remember, Paul went around as a preacher and teacher all over the place, and he would preach and teach about the grace of God and the gospel. This is what he did. 
He would preach Romans 3 through 5. We're all sinners. We fall short of the glory of God, but God put forth His Son, died for our sins, rose again. You believe in Him apart from works, justifies you. He preached the gospel of grace. This is how he'd summarize it. It's the good news of Jesus about the grace of God for all who believe. And of course, what would happen then is Paul would get questions. And he'd get questions about grace and questions about how that grace works out, works itself out in people's lives and what this grace is all about. And he offers two of those here, verse 1 and verse 15. The first one was, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? That's the first question. And then in verse 15, what then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Okay? And those are really the two questions that govern this whole chapter. It's just him explaining how the way they're thinking about things as they ask that question about grace is wrong. He's explaining how they have a wrong understanding of the grace of God if they ask one of those two questions. The first one, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Graham did an excellent job of explaining that. It flows right from chapter 5 where Paul was explaining about Adam and Jesus and how we're in Jesus now and not in Adam and through Adam all died, through Jesus all believe are alive. And he said then, he slips this in, he says now the law came in way after Adam under Moses, God gives the law and the law came in to increase the trespass. And what he's referring to there primarily is this, that now that when people have the law in their possession, they can see what is right and wrong. Now they have full knowledge, not just how they felt, not just their conscience, but actually what God has said is right and wrong. And so it really increases then the sin, the severity of sin when we sin against light. Our consciousness of sin, the law reveals sin to us and our inability to keep it. But he said, you know what though? Even where sin abounds, grace superabounds over the sin, which is it really good news for all sinners. That means that there's no sinner who's sinned so much they're disqualified from God's grace because wherever sin abounds, God's grace overflows that sinfulness to that sinner who comes to Christ in faith. So they don't have to worry about that. But then that kind of grace then leads to the question when they say, well then, Paul, if grace, and this could be a very snarky question, could come from a person being just kind of, kind of a pain, just kind of, okay, Paul, well, okay, what about this then? If grace, if God's grace looks real good when we sin, should we continue in sin so God's grace keeps looking better, Paul? And people say there's no such thing as stupid questions. <laughs> That's a stupid question, but I'm going to entertain it, says Paul, because I'm a good teacher, and then I'm going to teach and show how stupid that question is. How can we continue in it, says Paul? And then he explains the gospel. 
This question, though, reveals a misunderstanding of the whole gospel of Jesus and how it affects us, how it changes the life. And in these first four verses, he uses the illustration of water baptism. Convinced that's what he's referring to here. That's why he says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we, of course, walk in the newness of life. So he's going to use an illustration for them to answer this question of a common experience they all shared because they were all Christians. And Paul's assuming they had all been baptized because when somebody becomes a Christian, they, be, they are baptized and so they all experienced it. And as a good Baptist as I am, I'm convinced that they submerged, they baptized them, they dipped, they plunged them into water. And what we're seeing here is when they did that, it was picturing their union with Christ in the gospel. And he's saying this, this is his argument. Let's say I'm doing a baptism right now and we got that nice baptismal tank we bring out and I take somebody and I say, you believing in Jesus? Yeah. You want to be a disciple? Yeah. Okay. Now, I'm going to say this from now on. You've died with Christ in the gospel, right? You've been buried with Christ into his death, into baptism, right? And you put him under the water. And Paul said, it'd be like this. You just hold them there. <laughs> no, no. You're seeing feet kicking and everybody's getting worried and doesn't know what to do. Paul's like, that's ridiculous. The gospel doesn't end with Jesus dying on the cross and getting buried in the tomb. He then, and this is what we do, this is the demonstration. We say, now, Walk in the newness of life. It's a picture of the resurrection, you see. It's because of the resurrection that we'll celebrate next weekend that we are now alive in Christ Jesus and can walk now in the newness of life. So, of course, no understanding of grace should ever leave us in the tomb, you see. And then in verse 15, what then, Paul, are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? I mean, he just said in verse 14, very comforting passage for Christians that understand this, for sin will have no dominion over you in your battle against sin. It's not going to win. It doesn't rule and reign. There may be times you fail, but you need to know this. Because of the cross and the resurrection of Christ, sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. Enter smart aleck number two, question on grace. What then, Paul? We're not under law? Okay. So can we sin because we're not under law but under grace? And there are Christians that think that way, right? And that's really the heart behind that question is a lot of, do I get to sin now that I'm not under the law and under grace? It's really a revealing of a heart, isn't it? Because somebody's heart who's been really changed by the gospel, 
Friends, they may sin at times, but they don't want to. You ever watch a new convert, I mean really born-again person, and they come out of a lifestyle that is just not good and it's sinful, and they try to dabble in it a little bit still, and they try to still hang around some of the same crowd, and they still try to do the same. They're miserable. And eventually they just say, I can't do this anymore. I don't want to sin. It's exactly what John was talking about in our scripture reading last week, that those who have been born of God cannot keep on sinning. They maybe even give it a whirl for a time, but it doesn't work because they've been born of God. That's the true gospel in the the person who asks this question or who even wants to continue in grace has no understanding of grace at all. And they are in the condition, as Paul says, verses 16 and on, they are slaves to sin still. Nothing has changed in them. The gospel has not changed them. They have not experienced the blessings of the spiritual resurrection with Christ and the new life that Christ offers. You know what grace does in an individual's life? Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. The grace of God in Christ now has appeared. The grace of God is bringing salvation for all people. Justification, sanctification, glorification. And the grace of God is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. This is why when you're trying to live in sin, when you're harboring a sin behind the scenes and your soul is in turmoil... You know who that is? That's grace yelling at you. That's grace in you. It's the grace of God saying, this isn't right. Renounce this ungodliness. Renounce these worldly passions. And live uh, self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself, listen, to redeem us from all lawlessness. There's our word again from Romans 6. Grace is not lawlessness. Grace is training us on the opposite of that to submit now our lives Submit ourselves to as slaves of righteousness because Jesus gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You are saved by grace apart from works, but works are not completely taken out of the equation, are they, when it comes to the full salvation that God brings. You're not saved by your good works. No way. But you are saved for your good works, right? Now that, friends, is true grace teaching. Let me show you one more thing. Because I believe that a misunderstanding of grace is the source of a lot of Christians' problems, a lot of churches' problems. 
They have a misunderstanding of the grace of God. It goes part and parcel with a misunderstanding of the love of God. Let me show you one more thing, okay? Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. That's on page 1297 if you have one of our Bibles. 1 Peter 5, and I'm going to change, uh, I'm going to land the plane with this. Peter's summing up his letter here, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 12, where he says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring, listen to this, that this, what I've written in these five chapters, this is the true grace of of God. Stand firm in it. In other words, he already understood that there were people at that time writing things that were not the true grace of God. They were the false grace of God. Okay? And the abuse of the grace of God all over the place. Now, watch this. What is this that he has written? Chapter 1. Listen to things like this. Verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action... And being sober-minded, verse 13 of chapter 1, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Listen, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also must be holy in all your conduct. Then he quotes the law, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy, you see. That's the true grace of God. Or chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Friends, that abstaining from those sinful passions... That's the true grace of God. Now stand firm in it. And one more, chapter 4. Good place to end. It connects right with what Paul's teaching us in Romans 6. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. This is, by the way, a good Passion Week meditation right here. The suffering week. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. You see, this is the true grace of God. And the grace of God has this effect, says Peter. You no longer do those things you used to do. You're not even running with the crowd that used to do them. They're wondering why you're not running with them and they start to malign you for it. But you say, I'm standing now in the true grace of God. I'm going to walk in it. I have been crucified with Christ and buried with Christ and I have been raised with Christ now and I'm going to walk in the newness of the Christ life. That is the true grace of God. That is the full gospel effect in a true believer's 
life. May it be true of everyone in this room. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. How clearly you show us our sin, the righteousness of Christ, and then what is expected of us once we've encountered your grace. Help us all to be a holy people, God, to pursue holiness. Because the end of holiness is eternal life. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.